Israel. Paul had a unique ministry from the other apostles. They ministered before kings and they ministered before the Jews. But Paul was specifically called to bear... Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom begins a new six-part series titled God's Great Secret. According to the Oxford Dictionary, the word mystery is defined as something that's difficult or even impossible to understand or explain. And that is a valid definition. But what does the Bible say? How is a mystery defined by biblical standards? Well, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul addresses in chapter 3 of his letter to the church at Ephesus. And throughout the series, Tom will explore what Paul refers to as the mystery of God. It's a divine secret, if you will, a secret that has now been made known through divine revelation. But what is this mystery, this secret, and why should you be concerned about its implications for you today? Find out as we examine Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13 in this series. Well, Tom, we've come to trust in the clarity of Scripture so that the very idea of something being a mystery or secret sounds a little bit odd to us. Could you clue us in as to why the Apostle Paul is mentioning this mystery in the first place? You know, Bill, it it fits perfectly with what Paul is doing in the book of Ephesians. He's really discussing the eternal plan of God, and the first three chapters unfold that plan, both at a cosmic level as well as in chapter 2 at a very personal and individual level as the plan of redemption unfolds in an individual life. And so as we come to chapter 3, we're really getting insight, further insight into that mystery that is the eternal plan of God. And what Paul wants us to know is at the very center of that mysterious eternal plan is Jesus Christ and his gospel. And the fact that that gospel is now a worldwide message that includes the Gentiles. And so the mystery is really that eternal plan of what God is accomplishing in redeeming a people for his son. And that's what we're going to discover together. Thanks, Tom. And friend, open your Bible now as we join our teacher here on The Word Unleashed. I invite you to turn with me again to Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus as we begin the third chapter of this great book. Let me remind you that the chapter divisions don't go back to the beginning. In Paul's letter to the church there in Ephesus, there was no break between chapters 2 and 3. And so you have to remember that the context for the beginning of chapter 3 comes from the end of chapter 2. In the second half of chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, as we've seen, Paul reminds the Ephesian believers that through the work of Christ, they have been connected to Christ and to each other, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, rich or poor, male or female. And he ends that discussion of that wonderful union that we enjoy with three illustrations. Illustrations of how we now enjoy this union with God and with each other. He says we are like citizens in a new country with a new king. We are like members of a new family with a new father. 
And we are like living stones in a new building designed to be the place where God dwells and is worshipped. That's the context in which verse 1 of chapter 3 occurs. Notice how he begins, for this reason I, Paul. Now, if you remember, we've seen that expression before. Look back at chapter 1, verse 15. Paul wrote, for this reason I too, having heard of your faith, and he goes on to introduce a prayer, verse 16, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. And what follows is one of those beautiful prayers of the apostle Paul. You see the same sort of thing in Colossians chapter 1 in a book that was written around the same time from prison as well. Verse 9 of chapter 1, for this reason also we have not ceased to pray for you. This is often the way Paul introduces his prayers. So back in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 1, Paul is about to record one of his prayers in response to what he's just taught in the last half of chapter 2. But at the end of verse 1, as he's just sort of getting started with his prayer, he interrupts himself, and he doesn't get back to the prayer until verse 14. Look down in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So you can see then that verses 2 through 13 are in fact a digression, a long one-sentence interruption to Paul's prayer. Something Paul says in verse 1 interrupts the prayer he's about to tell them about and causes him to explain this first. What was it that interrupted him? Well, let's look at verse 1 together. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. As Paul begins to record his prayer for them, he's reminded of the fact that he is even as he writes this letter, in prison because of his ministry to the Gentiles. Remember that it was just three or four years before he writes this letter that Paul had been accused of bringing a Gentile past that famous dividing wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of Israel there at the temple in Jerusalem. And because of that accusation, Paul had been arrested. He ended up having to appeal to Caesar because the Jews hated him so much, and what they hated most about Paul was his affinity for, his ministry to the Gentiles. Back in Acts chapter 22, as as Paul has been arrested and is ascending the stairs out of the temple compound, he speaks to the Jews who were assembled there on the temple mount, and he says this to them, verse 21 of Acts 22, Christ told me that he would send me far away to the Gentiles. Verse 22 says, they listened to Paul up to this statement. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. They had utter animosity for the ministry that Paul would have to Gentiles. So with all of that going through Paul's mind, back in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, he writes, for this reason, because of this new union that exists between Christian Jews and Christian Gentiles that I've just explained to you, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, we read that and our eyes pass over it without really thinking about it. Paul uses a similar statement some four times, four other times in his writings, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. 
but it's really a, a sermon in and of itself, and at some point maybe I need to come back and dwell on it, because you see what's going on here. Paul is interpreting the circumstances of his life through the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Paul saw himself as a slave of Christ. He believed that Christ was in charge of everything. So in Paul's mind, he is not sitting there in prison getting bitter over the circumstances in his life. He's interpreting those circumstances through Christ and Christ's lordship. And he says, I'm not a prisoner of the Jews. I'm not a prisoner of the Romans. I'm not imprisoned because of Nero, the reigning emperor. No, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I am a prisoner because that was in Jesus Christ's sovereign purpose and plan for me. That, by the way, is how we ought to interpret the circumstances, the difficult circumstances that come into our lives. Paul found great joy there, and so should we. But why was Paul in prison? Why was he in prison in the first place? Notice what he says at the end of verse 1, a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. I'm here in prison because Christ wants me here, and he wants me here because it's for your benefit. And Paul mentions to them that he was a prisoner for their sakes. You remember back to what happened in Acts? He was arrested because he was accused of taking a Gentile, an Ephesian Gentile, an Ephesian believing Gentile from the church in Ephesus past that dividing wall. When he thinks of all of that, it reminds him that his entire life and mission is in fact about the Gentiles. So with that, he interrupts himself. He stops what was going to be the beginning of his prayer, and instead, he lays out for us the heart of his ministry. The theme of this interruption that begins in verse 2 and runs down through verse 13, the theme of Paul's interruption, his digression, is very clear. It's the mystery. The mystery. The word mystery occurs six times in Ephesians, more than any other of Paul's writings. And in these 12 verses, the word mystery occurs three times, more concentrated than anywhere else in any of Paul's writings. So this section, this interruption, is about the mystery. But before we look at what Paul says here about this mystery, we first have to understand what he means by mystery. The English word mystery is not a translation from the Greek. It is instead a transliteration. Now, this is confusing because you have the Greek word mystery and you have the English word mystery, and over time, what the word meant in Greek is completely different than what it now means in English. Here is what Mr. Webster says about the English word mystery. These are the two most common definitions of the word mystery. Anything that is kept secret or remains unexplained or unknown. And then the other definition of the English word that's most familiar is a novel, short story, play, or film whose plot involves a crime or other event that remains unsettled or unsolved until the very end. Think Agatha Christie. Think Nancy Drew or Hardy Boys. So in English, the word mystery refers to one of two things, either something that is still a secret or something that was a secret, but by my own careful investigation, I have come to know. So either I can't know it or I have come to know it on my own by hard work 
and research and investigation. That's the English word. Now, folks, if you're going to understand what Paul says, you have to forget everything I just said because the Greek word has almost nothing in common with the English usage of the word mystery. The Greek word mysterion, mysterion rather, occurs a total of 36 times in the Greek text of the Scripture, in the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, and the New Testament, 36 times in the text of Scripture. Eight of those 36 times is in one Old Testament chapter, and that is the only chapter in the Old Testament in which this word occurs. And so if we want to understand its usage in the New, we need to go back and see how it's used in that one foundational chapter, and that is Daniel chapter 2. Turn back there with me for a moment. Daniel chapter 2, you're familiar with the context, of course, Nebuchadnezzar's great dream that Daniel, by God's providence, is allowed to interpret. Now, I'm not going to touch on all eight times this word occurs here, but let me just give you a sampling. You remember, God allows Daniel to understand it. So, verse 19 says, then the mystery, there's our word, the mysterion, was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. And so God blessed the God of heaven, and the praise follows. Notice verse 28. As he explains it to Nebuchadnezzar, he says, There is a God in heaven who reveals Musterion, and he has made known what will take place in the latter days. Verse 29, As for you, O king, while on your bed your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future, and he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. Verse 30 is key in our understanding of this word mystery as well. Daniel says, but as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand. Now that begins to inform the New Testament usage of the word mystery. You'll notice what's going on here. It was a secret that God is now revealing by revelation. And the fact that it's now becoming known, Daniel says, has nothing to do with my own intellect, with my own process of discovery. It's strictly God's revealing it. That concept of mystery is what brings us to the New Testament. Now, it occurs, the word mystery occurs three times uh, in the, the Gospels, all in parallel passages. I'll have you turn to Mark's version. Mark chapter 4, verse 11, as Jesus begins to speak to His disciples, it says, He was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables. He says, listen, I'm, I'm going to help you understand the mystery but the people on the outside, they're not going to get it. There are many other passages I could take you to that I have here in my notes. I'm not going to take you to all of them. Let me just take you to a couple more. Turn to the end of Romans. Romans chapter 16, verse 25. Paul concludes his great letter to the church in Rome by saying, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested 
and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. It's not immediately obvious here in English as it is in Greek, but look at verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 2. When I came to you, brethren, Paul says, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you, and in English it says, the testimony of God. In most of your translations, there should be a sort of footnote that says that literally it is the mystery of God. I came to you proclaiming, church in Corinth, the mystery of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, with that background, turn to Ephesians, and let me show you how this word occurs in Ephesians. We'll define it in just a moment. Stay with me. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. Here's the first time it occurs in the letter to the church in Ephesus. Paul says, God made known to us the mysterion of His will. God made it known to us. Chapter 3, in the passage we're looking at this morning, verse 3, by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. Chapter 3, verse 4, when you read, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery. Verse 9, my job is to bring to light the administration of the mystery. Now, you begin to get the idea of what this word means. In biblical terms, a mystery is not something that it is impossible to know. It is not something that you can come to know on your own, however. Instead, in biblical terms, a mystery is a divine secret. A secret that at one time was not known and could not be discovered but a secret of God that has now been made known to us by revelation. That's a mystery. A secret God once held that nobody else knew, but that God has revealed to us. That's a mystery. And that's the theme of Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Now, the best way for us to work our way through this passage is by allowing Paul to answer a series of questions about this secret of God. In verses 2 through 4, we'll answer the question, to whom did God reveal His secret? In verse 5, when did God reveal His secret? And as time permits, verse 6, what is God's secret? So, God had a great secret that was for millennia unknown and could not be discovered by human ability, but He has now made it known to us by revealing it to us. What is it? And to whom did He reveal it? And when did He do it? Let's look at it together. First of all, to whom did God reveal His secret? This is in verses 2 through 4. Look at verse 2. He revealed it, simple answer, to Paul. Verse 2 begins, as he interrupts himself here in his prayer, if indeed you have heard. Now that construction assumes that they had heard. It's a kind of a gentle way to remind them all who had been there six years before when he administered there what they had heard from him. We could say it like this, if you have heard, and of course you have heard, of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you. The word stewardship here means a position of a house manager. 
the position or administration of a house manager. This was a special slave in an ancient first century household whose duty it was to manage all the affairs of the house. If you want a picture of this, think of Joseph in Potiphar's house. You're familiar with the story. You get a pretty good glimpse of what a steward was. Paul says, I am a steward in God's house. Paul's saying that as an expression of grace, God has given me a special assignment. He's given me a special stewardship. God had chosen Paul with a specific purpose in mind, and that purpose was to be a a missionary, an ambassador to the Gentiles. You see this from the very beginning. You remember back in Acts chapter 9, when God is talking to Ananias and sending Ananias from the church there in Damascus to meet with the now newly converted Paul, he says this to, to Ananias when Ananias argues a bit about you know, whether he should go or not out of fear of his own safety. The Lord says this to him in verse 15. The Lord said, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. Why? to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Paul had a unique ministry from the other apostles. They ministered before kings, and they ministered before the Jews. But Paul was specifically called to bear the name of Christ to the Gentiles. That was his mission. In Galatians chapter 1, just back a few pages from Ephesians there, Galatians chapter 1, verse 16 He says, God was pleased to set me apart from my mother's womb to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. That was Paul's mission in life. Galatians chapter 2, verse 7. He says, listen, God entrusted me with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that is the Gentiles, just as he did Peter for the circumcised, the Jews. I have this unique ministry. So Paul says, my role is to have this special stewardship to the Gentiles. This is the reason, by the way, the Jews hated Paul and eventually had him arrested, because they believed that he was distorting the Scriptures, he was perverting the Scriptures by reaching out to the Gentiles and arguing that they could have a similar place to God's chosen people. But watch how Paul counters that in verse 3. Look at verse 3 of Ephesians 3. The stewardship that I have, the special stewardship that God has given me, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. Paul says, I have come to know God's great secret. Now, the language that we have here can sort of cloud what Paul is saying. Don't miss it. Don't miss the drama of this moment. Paul is saying that the great eternal secret that God has held to himself, he has now revealed to me. I have come to know God's great secret. How? By revelation. In other words, God told me. I'm not making this up. God told me by direct thought transmission. One author says, Paul is at pains to emphasize that all of his understanding is by the gift of God. The knowledge of the mystery is not a personal discovery for Paul. It is only by God-given enlightenment that he possesses the truth. Now, Paul ends verse 3 by reminding them that already in this letter, he's already touched on this secret. 
Notice what he says, as I wrote before in brief. That's probably not a reference to a previous letter. We have no record of another letter. He's, he's saying, as I mentioned before in this same letter, it's probably a reference back to chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, where the first occurrence of the word mystery is, or it possibly could refer, as some commentators believe, to the end of chapter 2, where he talks about the Jews and the Gentiles. So, God revealed his secret plan. He revealed it to Paul. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 4 to say God has also revealed it to us. To us. God revealed the secret to Paul, not for his benefit, but for all of the Gentile Christians he served. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series titled God's Great Secret. Tom will bring you part two on our next program, and we hope you join us then. We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.